as you've probably seen by now, the Dharma is full of contradictions. And one question arose in the group this morning about one of these contradictions. A woman pointed out that last night I was talking about how everything was out of control, that everything seemed to be out of our control, and that life just impinges on us, and these events are ungovernable. We can't control them or govern them. So she wanted to know than what we were doing here. (laughs) Because if everything is out of our control, then how can we learn any control? And in fact, that's what we're trying to do. Are we trying to learn to control things? That, That was a little confusing to her because she thought she understood that, in fact, we could gain some control over our experiences. But then it seems that in many ways things are out of our control. <laughs> so how to to look at this, how to hold this? Because we do see that the whole set of conditions, external conditions and often our internal conditions, which are completely out of our control. Things happen. As we go along in life, we have our whole story, our whole construction of our lives, which is our events of our lives, that in some ways seems like we we didn't choose a lot of the things that happened, they just happened. So in truth, events of our lives are ungovernable. The things that occur are out of our control. But what we learn is how to relate to this uncontrollability, to this ungovernability. We learn how to have an attitude of mind which can embrace these changing events, the changing and unexpected conditions of life, how to meet those challenges, how to meet the the mystery of life so that we're not thrown by it, so that we can meet it with a certain balance with it, with with a, with a center, with a stability, as life continues on. One teacher pointed out to me that in Vipassana, we actually see these changing conditions moment to moment to moment so quickly that how can there actually be tranquility? How can we actually feel tranquil in the face of all this change, moment to moment to moment to moment. So he said that in fact, Vipassana isn't so much about learning or becoming tranquil, 
but it's learning tolerance. It's learning how to be tolerant in the face of these changing conditions. Not that we achieve any particular state. (laughs) Again, you know, it's not that we become fixed in a particular state (laughs) of mind or a state of body, but that there is an attitude that develops, an attitude which we can call tolerance, that is cultivated in the face of this change, in the face of chaos. So we have the external conditions which are impinging on us moment to moment to moment. And then we have the internal conditions, our mind states and our feelings and our emotions and our body sensations, our body conditions, which is changing moment to moment to moment. And we forget that these bodies and these minds are governed by the same laws as the external conditions that we are actually part of the same nature. We are that nature. The same nature as all of that which is around us. I wrote a poem, a short poem when I was on the three-month course, just reflecting on that point. I had a single room with quite a big window, which is, I actually asked for it and I got it. <laughs> None of the, room, the other rooms have really small windows. <laughs> and the, my window looked out way over the forest and I had the sky and the hills and the, the changing colors of the season. And I call this November song. Looking out my window at the trees on the far distant hills, all gray now, having dropped their brilliant colors. The changes day by day, sun, clouds, wind, cold, warm, fog, rain. And the one who stands behind the glass, is it the same one who was gazing onto the blazing red and orange display of autumn last month? How easily to be drawn into these differences does the window separate the nature? Are the conditions here really that different than the conditions out there? But this too is fire and wind and earth and water. No made up of the same elements, the same nature, is that out there. And this too can seem like it's in a great deal of chaos, just like that does sometimes out there. Go through the storms and the rains and the shifts of seasons, the weather. We have our internal weather report. (laughs) our internal climate. So we learn tolerance for this. It's not so much that that the conditions of life change when we get enlightened, (laughs) when we finally understand our true nature, then 
life stops impinging on us, (laughs) you know, then nobody around us dies and our body never gets sick and (laughs) the weather, the sun always shines, (laughs) the wars stop. It's not like that. All these conditions still go on, but something else changes inside not the body, not even the mind sometimes, something else. So life impinging on us, happening all the time, when we're not getting what we want, we feel this sorrow, this grief, despair. When we lose what we love, we feel that loss and grief and despair. But yet this has to happen. These events have to happen. Two years ago, when I was in India visiting one of my teachers, Punjiji, I got a message from a friend who was there also that my mother had rang Punjiji and that I should ring her back. <laughs> I mean, this was... <laughs> This was really odd, you know. I mean, of course you can imagine that I was extremely alarmed when I got the message because, I mean, my mother, um, she doesn't, she doesn't call. I mean, I don't even talk to my mother when I'm in America very often, let alone when I'm when I'm in India. And and of course I was imagining all kinds of things that must have happened at home. And when I, when I went to the SDT and rang, my sister answered the phone. And she said that my sister had just died. Just like that. My other sister. And you know, there I am sitting on the phone in India, just how, you know, going along, everything was going along quite merrily, just involved in my dharma and talking to my friends and my teachers. And my sister died got the flu a couple days before and then died. You know, totally unexplained, totally unexpected. How to hold information like that, how to deal with information like that. We're just going along and bam! Something unexpected. It's not something that I did, not something that I'm responsible for. Life impinging. Life happening. Are we ready? Are we prepared? The teachings ask us to contemplate on death, that it can be a really precious teaching to contemplate on death because we do take for granted that things will get easier, (laughs) that things are going to get better, that maybe life won't impinge so much on us anymore. There are three contemplations on death, the first one being the inevitability of death, (laughs) that death is inevitable whether it's our death or somebody else's death, that's going to come. 
The second contemplation is the uncertainty of the time of death. That we don't know when this death is going to come, our death or somebody else's death. Completely uncertain. And we go along as if we have all the time in the world. And we forget the preciousness of this life, the preciousness of this time, of this moment, of this moment. The third contemplation is that at the time of death, nothing is of value except our Dharma practice. That everything else is completely meaningless except the the extent that we have practiced the Dharma and that we've deepened into our understanding of the truth of things, the truth of who we are. If we believe at the time of death that I am my body, (coughs) there's going to be suffering. If I believe that I am my mind, there's going to be suffering. And it's only the Dharma, it's only the teachings of emptiness that can take us deeply into this truth of who we are. So that we don't go along in our lives deceived. And our life isn't one of suffering, but we can come to freedom. We can come to awakening where then death is not even a threat. Death is only a threat to these bodies, but not to the truth of who we are. One time when I was on retreat in Hawaii a number of years ago with Joseph Goldstein, We were due, we were, it was about, it was a 10-day retreat, and we were in about our fifth or sixth day of our retreat, about where you are right now. And we were on the big island of Hawaii, and it's a very primal island. I mean, it's very active. Being in Hawaii, you really feel the aliveness of the elements there. And about three o'clock in the afternoon, we were doing our walking meditation, and all of a sudden there was a clanging of a bell. Clang, 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 clang. The bell that they usually use for calling meals. And we, were, we didn't know what was happening, so we all kind of gathered over by the bell. And somebody told us that there was just word that the island was going to be hit with a tidal wave in about 20 minutes, and we had to evacuate. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, and then we did see helicopters flying around, you know, kind of starting to do the rescue. Well, there were a few local people who were on the retreat, and they said, wait a minute, wait a minute, you know, this may not be as bad as it sounds. <laughs> We've had these kinds of, of, of cautions before. Let's just retreat to high ground <laughs> and, and let's wait a little bit and see what happens. So some of the people went up way up on a high hill and 
the rest of us went into the meditation hall, which was elevated a bit. <laughs> and we, and Joseph was with us, and we, he said, let's go and sit. So we all, about, there were about 60 on the retreat, and there were about 30 of us who, who didn't go up on the hill. And we went into the meditation hall, and Joseph, Joseph was there, and he said, okay, now just sit. <laughs> and contemplate whether these are the last few minutes of your life. (laughs) And I, there was quite a big window that was facing, I could sort of see the ocean. And I remember sitting there and a few minutes later, I would sit up, look out look <laughs> to see if I could see the tidal wave coming. <laughs> and then I would sit. And, I, and it was the most amazing um, 20 minutes. Because talk about mindfulness <laughs> and attention. And there was not a wavering. There was not a movement of 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 sleepiness or <laughs> distraction. I was right there with that that contemplation. Is this it? Are these my last moments? And if these are my last moments, I want to be here for it. <laughs> I want to be awake. And there was such a vibration, such an energy in the room. And of course, as you can see, <laughs> I'm still here. And the tidal wave didn't hit. About 20 minutes later, we got the report that it was a false alarm, and there was an earthquake in Alaska, and that the expected effect from that earthquake was the movement of the water and the tidal wave to come to the Big Island. But there was only about two inches. (laughs) Not much of a tidal wave. But you can imagine how that <laughs> shifted things on the retreat for that time. That evening, as it started to get dark, there was a volcano <laughs> that we actually could see from the retreat. And it started to erupt. And we could see the ashes and the sparks flying out of the volcano, you know, and the lava flowing down the volcano but it was far enough in the distance that it wasn't a threat. (laughs) Energy, aliveness, the earth, that that unpredictability, the uncontrollability, that anything could happen at any time. Are we ready for it? Are we ready to meet the challenge of life? We don't have much time. We think that we have time. But these moments, every moment is so precious. Every moment revealing to us the urgency that we need to wake up. We need to wake up. And each moment revealing to us this unpredictability of life. And can we meet it? Do we have the presence? Do we have the attentiveness? The balance of mind to meet it? 
when we stop struggling with life, when we stop struggling with the conditions of life as, as they come, when we can start to put down our conflict with life, the heart begins to open, the heart awakens. And this can even be momentary. I mean, it doesn't have to be something that happens and then we, well, it's finished. You know, the heart opens and then the heart is open. But it's momentary. We have these moments where we, we taste that opening. We taste what it's like to be centered, to be balanced, to be present. And then maybe the mind imposes itself again, the forces of mind come again, the negativity overwhelms us, the emotions overwhelm us, and we lose our balance, we lose our control. But then it calms down, and then we can feel that stability again. We can feel our center. We can meet conditions with that, that strength again. And each time this happens, each time we we can get, we feel our strength again. We're, we're recouping. We're, we're stabilizing in that balance of ourselves. So these moments are precious, these moments when we do feel that inner strength, when we do feel that calm. We were talking today in the group about nurturing those conditions that when those conditions of mind and body do arise, to nurture those conditions, to also remember what situations bring about that calm, bring about that stability, whether it's being with certain people that help us feel more loving or more supported, or whether it's gardening, or whether it's dancing, or reading certain books, or taking walks in the forest, paying attention to what conditions bring about that sense of strength in ourselves. And that stabilizes. It stabilizes over time so that we can meet the conditions of life more with more strength, with more determination. So as we deepen into that inner strength, what's happening is that the heart is awakening. This is what I call the awakening of the heart. And it's not that we're adding anything on to ourselves. It's not that we're becoming more than we were, or we're becoming even different than we were. We're becoming more of who we are. We're we're becoming more of our natural being. Not the, not, we're not adding anything, but in the taking away of that which we don't need anymore, taking away these negative mind states, these unhelpful um, ways that we are, patterns of mind and being, as we take that away, we discover what's there. We discover the heart, the qualities of the heart. These qualities of the heart that are already there, when we can clear our vision, clear the seeing, 
are called the Brahma Viharas, the four Brahma Viharas. Brahma Vihara meaning divine dwelling, the dwelling place of Brahma, the home, the home of Brahma. And these four Brahma Viharas are the natural core of our heart. They're what's already there. That's what pierces through. That's what shines through in those moments when the negative forces aren't overwhelming us, when we're not lost in distraction. The heart is shining through. When I was on the three-month course, the practice that I did for two months was the practice of the Brahma Viharas. And I talked about the metta (coughs) practice, which was the foundation of the practice. The metta practice is the foundation because it's underlying the other three. The other three are metta being loving-kindness is the first. The second is compassion, or in Pali it's called karuna. The third is what's called empathetic joy. It's called in Pali mudita, mudita. And the fourth is equanimity, in Pali called upekka. Upeka. These four qualities of heart were described by the Buddha as, as qualities that can be cultivated until we actually open fully to our own heart. And there's a practice for each one of these qualities, the metta, karuna, mudita, and upeka. been talking about the metta, the metta being simply holding the intention for wishing well. Just that intention, so simple, just that simple intention for wishing ourselves well and wishing others well. It's a love with wisdom, a love without fear. The fear is what brings in the attachment and the holding. But the metta is a love without fear, a love with wisdom. And the phrases that we practice in the metta, you're quite familiar with now. May I be happy. May I be healthy and strong. May I be safe and protected. May I know the joy of well-being. And those phrases have a way of transforming the opposite energy, which is called the enemy. We call it the enemy of the heart qualities. In this case, the enemy of metta is anger, aversion, So by practicing metta, 
through the phrases and through that intention to wish well, it counteracts the enemy of anger and aversion. Each of these qualities has a near enemy, which means it can a mind state or feeling can arise which we think is metta, but it isn't. <laughs> and that is attachment. We think we're being loving. We think we're being uh, caring. But there's a little bit of possessiveness or a little bit of expectation or a little bit of demand, a little extra. <laughs> So we get a little confused, (laughs) we get a little bit deceived because the fear is there, the fear is operating, it's not just wisdom, it's not the purity of metta. So we call this the near enemy because there's that the deception so easily can come in and we don't see clearly that it's not just that simple wish for somebody's well-being. With compassion, very interesting to explore the difference between compassion and metta, because they can seem like very similar feelings. But compassion or karuna is actually the heart filled with metta turn towards suffering. Compassion is that feeling that arises in the face of suffering, in the face of pain. And the phrase for the practice of karuna is so simple and beautiful. May you be free of your suffering. May you be free of your suffering. Nothing more nothing less. Just that wish with metta in the face of pain. May you be free of suffering. There's a tenderness, a gentleness. It's the opening of the heart filled with metta in the face of pain. Opening to pain is compassion. Someone said in the group this morning, which is so, so accurate about compassion, he was talking about feeling that compassion arise in himself. And he said, compassion is really piercing. He said, it's just, it has a piercing quality in the face of pain. He said, he said it was like, like, it reminded him of a time when he would go to the room at night to care for his crying, hot, crying, hot child. And the kind of embrace and the kind of attention that that experience demanded. Now, that quality of compassion, now it's, it's, a, it's, it's piercing, it's, a, it's an all-consuming attention. Right there with suffering, right there with pain, no distance, no distraction. But you can see that it takes a real openness. (laughs) I mean, we all know this one. I mean, how difficult it is to open that completely in the face of pain. 
I mean, we're working on it with ourselves, let alone with others, <laughs> and with the, with the intense difficulties in this world to meet the suffering that we all face, both in ourselves and with others, is incredibly demanding. Compassion is a very important factor in the teachings. The Tibetan teachings, the Tibetan Buddhist teachings, base their whole teachings on the on the teaching of bodhicitta. This is from Lama Kempo, a great Tibetan Buddhist Lama. In seeing the extent of suffering which arises from ignorance and delusion, both in ourselves and others, when one sees the vastness of this suffering, only then can genuine feelings of compassion and wishes to free those beings develop in our minds. And without becoming depressed or pessimistic, but rather to see things as they are, one can bring forth the best in ourselves to help relieve that suffering for ourselves and all beings everywhere. The bodhicitta wish is about clearing away any defects or any, anything that hinders our hearts to meet that suffering so completely that we can help to relieve the suffering we see, both in ourselves and in the world around us. And that's the basis for, for the whole of the spiritual path, so that we can help each other and we can bring about freedom in this world. We can bring about peace and harmony in this world, but only we can only do that by allowing our own hearts to be unhindered so that our own hearts don't close off in the face of this pain, in the face of this suffering. The energy that compassion transforms the far enemy is cruelty and violence and abuse. It has the way when we can cultivate compassion, when we can cultivate this clear compassion with wisdom, then it can counteract the cruelty. The cruelty that arises in our own minds as well as the cruelty that goes out to others. The near enemy of compassion, the one that gets disguised as compassion, is sorrow, grief. This is a little bit of a surprise because sometimes we can think that when we're grieving, we're really feeling that compassion for the other person. But it's not to say that the grief isn't necessary, a necessary part of the process, but we're still not completely there. We're not completely open to the other person. We're still having to go through our own sorrow and our own fear and our own attachment 
until we can get to that pure compassion, the ability to be right there without grieving, without feeling sorry for, without feeling the sadness. And it's not a sadness like, of course, it's quite a sad situation, but we're not lost in our sorrow. But we're able to be there to meet, to take the appropriate action to help relieve the suffering that we see. Our emotions aren't overwhelming us. Our emotions don't interfere with what is appropriate. But we can be there wholly and completely. The third one is mudita or sympathetic joy. Empathetic. I like empathetic joy better. When we're really able to empathize with somebody. And really what that is, it's simply the appreciation for somebody else's joy. The appreciation for somebody else's success. Because what so often arises is comparing and envy and jealousy. (laughs) We're not able to just often feel very happy when other people are happy. So often we feel that it takes something away from us. It's a kind of loss. Well, if they're happy, why can't I be happy? And we can fall into a feeling sorry for ourselves, or, or it can cause us to feel unhappy when we see other people happy. But that ability to just feel that happiness in the face of somebody else's happiness is such a wonderful feeling to be out of the way enough not to have our stuff come in that we can just say, I'm so happy for you. I feel so happy that you are feeling happy. I'm feeling so happy that this has happened for you in your life. The phrase for practicing mudita is, may your happiness and joy never leave you. Or may your happiness and joy never end. How beautiful! (laughs) That wish for that happiness to continue for them forever. May your happiness and your joy never end. And the energy that gets transformed is envy and comparing. When I feel the envy coming up, just to say, may your happiness never leave you. To see if I can feel that joy, feel that happiness for the other person. The near enemy, which gets disguised as mudita, or empathetic joy, is over-exuberance. Feeling so happy. and so much joy for the other person that we completely get lost in it. (laughs) Oh, isn't it wonderful? Oh, it's so great! (laughs) It's so terrific this happened. But where's the the balance? (laughs) 
Where's the grounding? Where's that simple connection? How wonderful this has happened for you. So we don't get lost in the joy. Getting lost in the joy is, a, is grasping. It's attachment. It's fear. Fear that if I don't hold on to it now, I'll lose it. It's here now. I better hold on to it for all I can. Let's really get into it. (laughs) It's not balanced. And the last one, (coughs) equanimity, balances all the other three. As I just said, the mudita, the uh, the sympathetic joy, the equanimity is what what keeps it on the ground. It's feeling other people's joy with equanimity. (coughs) Feeling compassion, meeting pain and suffering with equanimity. Being able to love and simply wish well for others without getting lost in it with equanimity. And so equanimity is the overarching quality of the other three. It holds it all together. So we don't get lost in the feelings. We don't get lost in the love. We don't get lost in the compassion. We don't get lost in joy. But we're here. We're present. We're grounded. The equanimity is balanced and connected. Oftentimes we, I know for myself, I imagined that equanimity was a quality of detachment. When I'm so equanimous that I'm not caught up, therefore I'm detached. But one can get so detached that they're not even connected. (laughs) There's just indifference. I don't even care. No, I'm so balanced and I'm so equanimous that I don't even know what's going on. (laughs) Oh, whatever. It doesn't really matter. Oh, people are suffering. Oh, people are happy. It doesn't matter. I'm I'm balanced. (laughs) I'm equanimous. (laughs) This is not equanimity. (laughs) The near enemy, that which gets disguised as equanimity, is indifference, is inaction, is disconnection. And the energy that it transforms is any reactivity in the mind, any reactivity towards or away. It transforms all attachment and all aversion which arises out of fear. So the practice of equanimity brings us down on the ground so that we're not all over the place. (laughs) We're not reacting and we're not holding on, not clinging. But we're here and we are open to the pain. We're open to love. We're open to joy, but we're on the ground. This is what the equanimity offers. And the phrase for 
equanimity is a phrase that I find extremely helpful in the face of the pain of life. And it has to do with facing situations that are difficult. More so with others than for ourselves. And the phrases go like this. All beings are the heirs of their own karma. Their happiness and unhappiness depends on their actions, not on my wishes for them. Their happiness and unhappiness depends on their past actions, not on my wishes for them. So people's happiness is dependent on the work they do on themselves, is dependent on how they're dealing with their own inner world, not on what I'm going to wish for them. If somebody isn't doing their own work, if they don't have the wisdom to help transform their own energies, their own karma, then it's not going to change. Transformation isn't going to come. And so it's very helpful for me to be able to sometimes sit back and just remember that I'm not responsible for what's happening in these people's lives. But if I can offer them something, if I can stay connected, feel compassion, share my love, offer them something that may help their transformation, and they take it and bring about transformation in their lives, then that's wonderful. But I can't do it. I can't change people's lives. I can't change their inner world. I can't change their, the events that happen to them in their life. <coughs> it's so powerful for me, powerful for me, to do this practice. Just to remember that all beings are the heir of their own karma. That means their past actions. These are the qualities of the heart that are naturally there. As the negative forces of mind start to dissipate, start to quiet down, these qualities shine. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.